You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. Welcome to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. My name is Cliff Bailey, and I am joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. In this inaugural episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, our aim is simple. We want you, the audience, to get to know us a little bit, what attracts us to this Niebuhr fellow, and what it is we want to do with this podcast, the overall goals of the podcast, and some of the more specific and practical things we'll be featuring on here. But first, we're going to go around and just introduce ourselves to you all and uh, tell you how we got into this guy, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. So um, let's let's start with you, Zach. Yeah, I'm, I'm Zach Nearson, um, a pastor at a little church out in Onalaska, Washington, a little Presbyterian church. Um, what got me into Niebuhr is I was uh, going to Moody Bible Institute, actually, uh, probably not in the same theological tradition as Niebuhr, but I was, um, it was actually an, an article that I came across on CNN while I was at um, Moody. It was published in 2010. It was, it was saying Obama's favorite theologian. And I had kind of heard about Niebuhr in historical theology class, but I just so happened to kind of read on uh, Niebuhr in this article. And I was just kind of struck by the fact that like the things that I knew about Niebuhr from historical theology, I was kind of struck that Obama um, was so like thought that this was one of his favorite theologians. And so that got me on this, you know, trail where I've, I've over the years, I've kind of slowly built up a fondness for Niebuhr. Um, and then more recently, he's really become uh, probably in the last two years, really become a fixture. I spent a lot of time reading his stuff. Um, and just engaging with it. Yeah, good. How about you, Aaron? Or what, uh, well, first introduce yourself and then kind of what you what got you into this. So yeah, my name is Aaron Duncan. I'm originally from Cincinnati. Uh, I went to my undergrad at University, Cincinnati Christian University where I majored in biblical studies and had the pleasure of meeting Cliff Bailey, which me. taught my first philosophy class, which kind of got me into uh, reading a lot of uh philosophy sources, um, Nietzsche and stuff early on. Um, and he always found a way to pave in Niebuhr a bit. So I had the, the ruminations of Niebuhr in my mind ever so often uh, when I would go to sleep at night uh, at times. Um, and and then, Dr. Um, it was more baked in, in there than you even knew. So later on, it, it can flower. Yeah. What you're saying is you yeah, were Yeah, no, I'm here. I was <laughs> haunted by Niebuhr. There you go. Um, it, but then I went to uh, move to England and did my master's at the University of Nottingham in classics um, and got into uh, a bunch of theological trends such as radical orthodoxy um, and uh, philosophical stuff like uh, philosophy's way of life, um, which is my main focus at the moment. Um, and during that time, I was really fascinated by, you know, trends in politics, obviously, in 2015, 2016, the world was really changing between Brexit um, and then COVID obviously happened. And I, I was enamored by the U.S. political uh, system going up in flames with Trump, Bernie, uh, Hillary. And 
I was always very confident personally and very devout follower of Bernie Sanders. Um, you and even, then one you day even named remember, your dog after him. I named my dog after Bernie. He's a beautiful dog. But I remember one day Cliff came to me and asked me, I believe you said to me, you know, what happens when Bernie wins? Is everything going to be okay then? And I got really frustrated with that question. <laughs> and that's not the point. And then I realized what he was getting at. And um, so I, I think Niebuhr's sort of subtle but very um, haunting warning about our own um, eagerness and pretensions and hopefulness in our politics is a good reminder to, to kind of reflect on who we are as human beings and really think about what it means to be human. And so kind of reading books with these guys right here um, has been my sort of introduction to Niebuhr and why I'm here. I don't know if that makes any sense. That was great. But... No, that was very good. Both of your responses yeah. were excellent. Um, I So I got into Niebuhr because, oh my gosh, like I, I went to that same school that Aaron went to, Cincinnati Christian University in undergrad. And gosh, I was like introduced through my brother, um, the whole world of philosophy kind of. And I started doing philosophy stuff at Xavier University while still at CCU. And so I, I couldn't, I had a hard time making kind of the philosophical world I was learning about fit with that evangelicalism that I was being exposed to at the other school. And I was so drawn to philosophy. Like I was so sucked into this thing and I had no theological mode of expressing that. And it almost seemed like I was just looking for a way out of or an alternative to that kind of theology that I was being taught there. And so I had a class at that same school, weirdly enough, at CCU called Contemporary Theological Trends, where the professor took us through a lot of neo-orthodoxy. And so I was exposed to Bart and Niebuhr and Tillich and Bonhoeffer and a whole bunch of guys who I've come to love. And I love them so much that I um, researched, you know, where do I go to learn about these people more? And what everything kept pointing me to was uh, Union Theological Seminary, where, um, of course, Niebuhr taught, Tillich taught, um, even Emil Brunner taught for a while, and Bonhoeffer went to Union. So I was like, okay, I got to go there. So that was kind of my way into philosophical theology, and Niebuhr ended up being the guy that I was, that I fell in love with more than anybody. And I think that um, the way Aaron put it once really um, resonated with me. I think, I think you said, Aaron, something like Niebuhr helps you temper your political anxieties. And that's a, that's a really good way to put it. Um, I think that, he, that Niebuhr helps me temper my political anxieties and my religious anxieties about how to deal with scripture and how to, how to make it speak to, uh, to this world today and how to let it speak to me. So um, that's the big, big way that I came to love Niebuhr. And I uh, did my thesis on Niebuhr in grad school at Union, um, did it on uh, the myth of national innocence in a post 9-11 world. And then I did um, my PhD on, on Niebuhr as well in relation to technology. So here we are. So uh, moving along, we all had kind of homework assignments coming into this. Um, we were each to come up with the top five reasons that we're into Niebuhr. 
um, could be theological concepts, philosophical, methodological, or even something um, about his life. So let's stick with kind of that order that we're, we've been going in and uh, we'll count it down from number five, just go around. Um, and a note to our audience, we don't have any idea what the others said on this. So there will probably be some overlap and that's totally fine. So let's hear it, Zach. What's your number five reason you're in to Reinhold Niebuhr? Oh man, I, uh, it's funny. I, I left number, number five on my list to be one of my, one of my favorite obviously because I thought it would be last, but I'll say it first. Um, I think that I could summarize this as um, I wish like right now amidst all that's going on in Ukraine and um, just the geopolitical situation. Um, <clears throat> I find myself sitting often in the week, in the least cheesy way, but just thinking to myself, I wish that he was still here. I wish that he was still speaking to the moment. I wish he, was still offering insights about how we should understand what's kind of taking place. Um, and just kind of giving us direction and uh, kind of striking at the heart of some of the, the, the sinfulness on, um, <clears throat> I say that I don't say this lightly, sinfulness on both sides. You know, we can sometimes idealize uh, our own position against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but to also recognize our own sinfulness in, in bringing that situation about not at all saying that it's at all anyone's responsibility except for Russia, but I think that uh, it's a complex uh, issue. And so I wish, I wish he was still here. I mean, I think that's my number five. Yeah, good. How about you, Aaron? Sorry, guys. I think number five for me would be his uh, particular method of going into different schools of thought, so a scholastic method. I find that really intriguing um, and because I think at an un, as an undergrad, I had a general anxiety of not knowing where to really go or begin. And so I found myself kind of wandering through a lot of reading, dense reading that I never really understood and picking up little by reading so much. Um, I think Seneca makes the point that you should sit with one scholar and read them thoroughly to actually gain wisdom. Sorry, we're experiencing technical difficulties. Thank you for your patience. I find that very, very interesting. Yeah, good. Um, okay, so for me, number five is the time frame he was born in. Um, there's something about those wor World War II, Cold War era theologians, Bart, Bruner, Bonhoeffer, even C.S. Lewis, Tillich. The, uh, these guys wrote with seemingly such urgency. Um, and they knew that what they had to say had kind of colossal meaning for the time. Theology mattered at the time, seemingly. I mean, a lot of people, and, and they wrote like it, and, and I, you know, and I might be romanticizing a bit, you know, I, I know historically, you know, stories of Bonhoeffer writing Niebuhr, tipping him off about the Germans and knowing that Niebuhr's coming over there, uh, Niebuhr speaking um, at Edinburgh and you hear the bombs raining down around him. Like there's something kind of romantic about that a little bit. It just seems like theology meant something to these people and, and they all believed it and their readers did too. So I, I think that that's uh, 
That's definitely number five. I love that time period. Um, there was an anxiety and there was such a concern for morality at that time and um, with all those thinkers seemingly. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, the, the urgency of that, of that time period. Even like when I'm like wanting to read fiction, I read like uh, Cold War spy novels and stuff like that because I just love that time frame. So Niebuhr is kind of a child of that. And it represents a time of anxiety, but it's also a time uh, of kind of colliding worlds. I think um, right before Niebuhr's born, uh, the, the first telephone was invented. Um, and by the time he died, there's, you know, nukes, you know? So it's like, um, uh, it's, it's a crazy, people that lived during that time witnessed such a radical change to the world. Uh, in their own lifetimes, you know, going from the Wright brothers to, you know, 747s. It's a, it's a pretty crazy time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a good point too. Like I would agree. That's really quite, something I didn't write on my list, but he definitely, like there's something about this moment in history that we're like, there's lessons there that we're still kind of learning. We're still putting together. Uh, it's kind of like people say we we're just now feeling like the, the full of, or we're starting to feel the full effects of the printing press. And I feel like, we're, I, I feel like in some ways we're, we're just feeling the, you know, the effects of Niebuhr, you know what I mean? It, but maybe that's because it's my era, but yeah. Great points. Number four, Zach. Yeah. Um, I, I actually want to start off reading something from just a short excerpt from uh, Leaves from the Notebook of a Tame Cynic, one of Niebuhr's, uh, his journal from his early ministry in, De in Detroit. He says this in the entry, it's from 1919. He says, visited Mrs. Z at the hospital. I like to go now since she told me that it helps her to have me pray for with her. I asked the doctor about her and, and he says her, ca her case is hopeless. Here faith seems really to be functioning and lifting the soul above physical circumstance. I've been so afraid of quackery that I have learned over that I've leaned over backwards, trying to avoid the, encour the encouragement of false hopes. Sometimes when I compare myself with these efficient doctors and nurses hustling about, I feel like an ancient medicine man dumped in the 20th century. And I think there's something about his vulnerability. I think that's really what it is. Like there's something really disarming about his vulnerability. Here's one of like the most influential people in theology, you know, maybe not the most influential, but a lot of people would argue in, in, in the last 200 years in America, you know, one of the most influential theologians. And here he's saying, he's speaking to an experience that is very common to pastoral ministry. I mean, I, I can speak to that very same experience, you know, going into a hospital and the person just wants me there. They just want me to pray with them. They just want me to uh, give them hope, you know, and I feel somewhat like an ancient medicine man dumped in the 21st century. And um, there's yeah. something kind of very pre-modern about the way Niebuhr thinks. Yeah, they can also kind of bridge into the modern or postmodern, and I think it's like a vulnerability without shame. Like he's not ashamed; he's he's ashamed of it while he's writing about it here, but he's not ashamed of it enough to hide it from us. He's not like it's like, hey, like we. I'm just going to tell you this. Like I, I feel like an ancient medicine man. I mean, and that's just so disarming to me. And I think it, it's actually very powerful. Um, and I think that you know, if I if I could, you know, I've been through all these ministry classes, getting my MDiv, and so on and so forth, and. If I could give you know any pastor 
that's starting out a book, I would give him this book because of Niebuhr's just insistence on being vulnerable. Thank you very much, Zach. Uh, Aaron, fourth. So my fourth point, I think, is somewhat in line with what you were saying about the timeline, right? About the era in which Niebuhr and these guys are writing. Because I was thinking about this today whilst watching the EU Council join uh, to condemn Russia's um, aggression against Ukraine. And all the speaker kept on saying, and they have been saying for a few weeks, that Russia is the biggest existential threat to enlightenment and peace project in the West. And I began to kind of really consider what's the difference between now and like World War II, like where Niebuhr ran. Like mm. we have war on massive scales and it seems like conflict and, you know, tragedies are occurring every day, if not on a greater scale than maybe in the 1930s and 40s, right? And we still dealt back then can... with barbarism and kind of anti-rationalism, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, on the one point, I think the sort of insistence of Niebuhr that human nature persists in all of us to the extent that we're all in a major state of conflict. We can't escape it. There's conflict, there's, there's jealousy, there's envy, there's, that leads to Professors from like building utopian societies. And then recently, um, as much as today, watching the European Council sort of come together to condemn Russia's aggression against Ukraine, they were all repeating the same phrases that, that Russia is the biggest existential threat to Europe's enlightenment projects and peace project in the West. And I just thought that was quite an interesting thing to say because, I mean, there's been conflicts domestically and internationally for ever since World War II concluded. Um, and to speak of it as if a, that we've had peace in the West for so long, it's quite, it seems to kind of color over the checkered history since World War II. I mean, we have more conflicts probably now today than back then. So I think as an overview, uh, Niebuhr's realism is a point that attracts me because I wonder if peace or the language of peace um, leads to boredom almost in our everyday lives. And when we become really, senti our sentimentality becomes sort of titillated by, you know, how great we are as a, as a country or what projects we're doing like the european union we've come together we've done these things which is all great but even there exists some allusions to you know how great we are what's going on in the everyday today yeah like there is a, i i'll tell you what i'm kind of getting tired of hearing and we've been hearing it since 2016 uh really picked up a lot in 2020 where people will say, it's 2020, and we're still dealing with blank yeah. racism. We're still dealing with, you know, I can't believe I'm seeing a pandemic. It's 2020. And there's kind of this uh, false uh, assumption that somehow progression in years equals we've gotten rid of these ancient atrocities and evils. Um, yeah. And there's kind of this illusion that we 
are no, we should no longer be dealing with some of these ancient sins, um, like somehow we've evolved past these types of things. But Niebuhr is the constant reminder that yeah. hi history is recurrent. And we, like, you are never, like, your progress will never, you know, relieve you and assuage you from these past problems. You know, some of these things yeah. are going to stay with us just in a new, just manifesting in new ways, you know, for I mean, uh, as long as we're human beings. I wonder, and, you know, because obviously we have a lot of dialogue on our a social scene about our politics, right? Like, you should vote this way. You shouldn't believe that. But a lot of people, like, on the right and left seem to have this sort of, I guess, preconceived idea that we're masters of nature almost. But neighbor really just say we are subject to nature and we are conditioned by it and you can't overcome it. Like the pandemic's a good idea, it's a good indicator of this. You really can't control it. It's something that happens, you know? Um, so I wonder maybe if speaking to politics, we first have to return to nature almost to kind of remind ourselves of who we yeah, are. We're tethered to nature. Like the, we can yeah. only kind of progress so much. I, I love, um, I think it's an, oh man, it's in Self and the Dramas of History, I think where Niebuhr says, man has van, vainly believed that his, the fact that he is a master of nature, or we have, we have come to confuse being a master of nature with being a master of self, or think that it's, a, it's an adequate substitute. And by trying to master nature with technology and even NATO and, you know, all these things are attempts to kind of master um, uh, our, our world. Um, but we can't confuse that for we've mastered ourselves and that we've somehow tamed the brute, you know, and mm -hmm. that, that part of us is always around. What's, uh, what's your number four? Mine? Yeah. My, my like, uh, these four in a row, these last four are like tied in my mind, like, uh, but this is the courage to change his mind. That mm -hmm. Niebuhr was not afraid throughout his life to buck the status quo. And, you know, as soon as, you know, he's got all these liberals on his side, he turns the knife on him and moral man and moral society, you know. Um, and then he kind of builds up another following. <laughs> he turns a knife on him again uh, with, with reflections on the end of an era. And, and the, there are all these points where you think you got a, a handle on this Niebuhr guy and his positions in the world. But he was always constantly uneasy, you know, about his own positions to the point where he could easily uh, change his mind about, uh, uh, about policies, about positions that he would take. Um, and it really speaks to kind of his prophetic role, I think, in society, that he was never afraid of speaking the truth, no matter how unpopular it was. One of the big, the big things that people kind of turn to, to think, you know, to make an example of this is when he stopped being a, a pacifist and became open to, to war uh, on the eve of, uh, of World War II. You know, he was one of the first out there saying, you, you know, guys, we might really have to consider war. Uh, we, we might have to take up arms. You guys still with me? Yeah, on to reason number three. Yep. Uh, yeah, number All three. Right. Zach. All right, yeah, my, my number three is that uh, it's kind of like personal, and this is going to relate probably to the, the, the next three because they're actually all related. I kind of connected one, two, and three, but I'm doing them backwards. Um, so 
I think the best way to describe this experience for me is that every time I read Niebuhr, he elicits a certain repentance in me. Like he elicits both a repentance and a humility that I don't really find from a lot of other authors. Like, you know, you can, you could read, like I, I find when, as I read the pages of a, you know, um, certain authors, I come across, you know, a couple of times where they're like, oh man, like that, that really challenged me. You know, that really like, that really made, called me to repentance, called me to rethink my view. I think probably like a book that, another book that would, has done this in recent times was I read uh, Jamar Tisby's book, uh, A Color of Compromise. And it's about the, the, the white church's uh, complicity in um, basically racial oppression in the United States. You know, so you're like reading this book and all throughout there's like this, like, man, like we need to change what we're doing. We need to change the way that we approach things. And I would say that my experience in that book, just that one book with Jamar Tisby is like how it is when I read almost every time I read Niebuhr, I come away with like, man, like I am just, I need to change what I'm doing. I need to rethink what I'm doing. I need to not have such a high view of myself or high view of my, my own view. Um, another place this kind of really came out was in irony of American history. Um, he really eviscerates the idea that we're innocent. We try to like place ourselves in an innocent position and try to, uh, we're continually trying to have others perceive us as innocent. You know, we want to, we want to take a political stand that is innocent or pure. And Niebuhr's point really to me in that book, amongst many, many other points was that you can't be innocent. You, you can't escape the, the, the jumping into the fray, the jumping into the difficult decisions, the, de the decisions that are going to, you're probably going to have to repent for. You're probably going to have to uh, confess that you've done wrong along the way. Um, yeah. And that'll connect to my next point, but I'll, I'll pass it off to Aaron. We, we never act from a position of purity, even when yeah. we do. Yeah. And, and I started seeing that everywhere. You know what I mean? After reading that, it's like, I, started seeing that everywhere like people are constantly trying to like justify their behaviors and it's like hey like i didn't ask you to justify anything you know but they feel like a need to be innocent in the eyes of others so that was you know just one example yeah good all right aaron number three well i had a different one but i think maybe to continue this point on with zach because i think that was a really good point zach um would be like neighbor neighbors potentially maybe uh, i don't know this is my weird connection like perhaps the simplest explanations aren't the, the correct answers mm -hmm. right maybe occam was wrong i don't know <laughs> maybe this might be neighbor's point um but it's so easy for us to break down and calculate who's good and who's bad at any given point in time and it's so easy as you were saying to kind of justify our own actions say, well, for these reasons, I'm, I'm a good person. I've done this thing bad. I mean, and I think Niebuhr's sort of relationship to Nietzsche in terms of like beyond good and evil, looking past between this sort of opposition, like he's either good or he's either bad sort of thing, mm -hmm. is really great for, I guess, modern day politics to help us kind of assess like, it's not as easy as saying this group is bad or this group is good because we're all internally complicated beings moving or oscillating between different states of, you know, goodness and badness. So however you want to say it. Yeah, that's great. Like, a, the, and I, I think it's, there's that always, you know, how you see the angel on, on one shoulder and the, and the devil on the other or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I always have kind of Niebuhr on my shoulder a little bit 
whenever I see something laid out simply, it's almost like this neighbor's telling me it can't be that simple. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you know, why don't we stop and, and break this down a little bit? And it's, it's kind of yeah. part of his kind of Socratic essence about Niebuhr is that uh, things are not always as simple as they seem. Mm -hmm. Good. All right, my number three is, it's similar to all these things that you guys are saying, weirdly, but um, is that Niebuhr's prime motivation is to clarify reality, not necessarily to transform reality. Transforming reality was always secondary to Niebuhr. Um, it was always secondary to understanding what's going mm. on. So it, it's not, he, he's kind of developed within me kind of this um, desire to understand the complexity of a thing and knowing that that mm. is more important than even knowing what to do next. At first, let's just understand, you know, the complexity of this issue. Let's put on the brakes and then maybe we can start talking about, okay, what do we do? Um, but yeah, it's, the way that he uses scripture, the way that he understands uh, the world, it's always, his methodology is always to clarify reality first and then transform it. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's uh, really well said. Number two, Zach. Yeah, number two, um, I would say it's probably this idea. You guys have already brought it up. Um, it's this idea that uh, sin is not going away. Um, one of the best one of my favorite things that Niebuhr does is when he talks about like political systems and how they will try to um, identify some sort of dysfunction in humanity and say that it's kind of the root dysfunction. It's the dysfunction behind all dysfunctions. Uh, he writes in the irony of American history in 1952, he wrote modern man's confidence in his virtue caused an equally unequivocal rejection of the Christian idea of the ambiguity of human virtue. In the liberal world, the evils in human nature and history were ascribed to social institutions or to ignorance or to uh, some other manageable deficit in the human nature or environment. And man, I'm just like that, that just his ability to, to remind people just kind of constantly, like even in, in light of these really powerful ideologies, they're just like sweeping out of the scene. I mean, the one that he really targets often at this time period is communism. And he's really able with the, just with the doctrine of sin, he's able to then take that doctrine of sin and to remind people of the shortcomings of basically any ideological system, even his own. And, you know, he says of the communists, he says the communist doctrine is more explicit and therefore more dangerous. It describes the origin of evil to the institution of property. And, you know, he speaks, he, he, that's really, really insightful. You know, that really gets to the heart of saying, Hey, like there's a, there's something naive Right. They, they've tried. They've they forgot this tenet that sin is not going away. And it, it kind of reminds us, hey, this is not a perfect system. Mm. Um, and it's like you were saying, it, it clarifies reality. It clarifies, hey, uh, don't be so naive. And I find myself after reading Niebuhr constantly running into people who and I mean, you know, uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now, I think, is shattering a lot of people's views you know, like they're, they're like, man, this, this project that we were doing, uh, progress, man, progress. Mm -hmm. But, but Niebuhr has been this voice who's actually been speaking for a lot of different people. You know, his influence has been felt, you know, there's been people all along saying, and I think Chris Hedges is a great one. Um, he's been constantly saying, Hey, you guys think this is progress, but you have no idea where we're headed. 
You know what I mean? Don't be so naive about human sin. Don't be so naive about the fact that um, we're not going to get rid of it by abolishing property. We're not going to get rid of it by through education. Um, I think another thing that's kind of shattered these illusions recently is just what happened in Afghanistan. I mean, I think I even bought into that. I thought, okay, like we've, we've invested a ton in education. We've invested a ton into like allowing these people to um, take on this democratic project that we kind of built there. And yeah, tried to build there and they just weren't that interested, right? They weren't that interested in keeping it around. You know, as soon as, as soon as we left, they were like, that's not what we want to do. And I think that was really disheartening to a lot of people, but I think that it was, you know, not to say that I don't want to say that the, that democratic project is in alignment with what is sinfulness or non-sinfulness, but I think we just forget about the power of corruption and the power of um, uh, just even like with, with going with Putin right now, like people in Europe, like demilitarized. I mean, Ukraine got rid of like all of its nuclear weapons, which I, I, I actually really liked that they did that. In you know, exchange to not be attacked and taken over by Russia. Yeah. Was the, yeah. yeah. But what we see is that like, as soon as they got rid of their nuclear weapons, they become vulnerable to somebody else's like greed and uh, power or what, whatever's driving Putin. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, it's yeah, the it's, irony of the situation. They gave them up so as to not be attacked, but it was precisely yeah. because they gave them up that they could be attacked. But I think at the base of it, there's, there's an illusion about sinfulness. There's an illusion about like, I, I'm all for n- nuclear non-proliferation, right? Like, get rid of as many nuclear bombs as possible. But I think there was just a naivety that we were just progressing. We were moving towards something that w- we wouldn't need nuclear weapons in the future, you know, to, to mm-hmm. maintain our borders. And it shows that like, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a really good case study, a really good example of, uh, I think Europe has become a little more naive and they're almost too late. You know, Germany just said they were going to invest, I think like, I don't remember how much money, but a lot of money, billions of dollars, I believe, in into re- basically revamping their military you know and it's like i think that it comes down to this naivety about sin about the fact that you know not everybody's on board with this project of progress you know not everybody's on board good um what are we on one or we're on number two for Aaron. two yeah two for Aaron. um if i recall correctly um as part of our sort of meandering around neighbor uh, from beyond trash we've done some reading and um elsewhere extracurricular reading from different sources and in one of the books we've read together um kind of paints neighbor as this sort of in-between person this sort of at home not a home guy mm-hmm. doesn't really know where to fit in and he's looking for that sort of thing in his life and oddly enough on a personal note this is the thing i think Cliff and I and our personal conversation with other have kind of connected on that the reason why we are attracted to one another as just friends is the sort of general anxiousness about life and not knowing where to go. And so in a weird way, I think it comes out through Niebuhr's dialectical method as well, probably. And probably one of the reasons why I find a lot, a lot of things that resonate for him with me not feeling exactly comfortable with standing my ground or asserting a flag and dying on a hill for certain mm-hmm. positions, be it politics or philosophical movements. Um, probably why I'm more leaned towards postmodernism, I guess, is a bit more like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> what to do? Let's relativize everything. Hey, he's called a day. But um, 
and I think that point was really made earlier this year when Cliff and I read um, On the Road by St. Augustine by Dr. James Smith. Um, and James gives this brilliant analogy that the road we travel on is not made by ourselves, but is something that is made by people who come before us. We're always traveling on a road with somebody else um, that precedes us. And uh, I find that a, quite a beautiful piece of imagery to kind of reflect on my own life. Of that. You're never alone. You're always following in someone's footsteps. Um, and uh, you know, there's still that kind tension of there away. of home, but not home. You're on yeah, the yeah. road, it's you're a, alone, yeah. but it's been paved by yeah. others. Yeah. And that sort of weird paradox of you know existence, I guess. But yeah, I find that resonates with me quite quite well. That's uh, beautifully put, absolutely. And that's a major theme in Niebuhr's own life and being caught between the German speaking world and the English speaking world, and uh, being at union. His family. Yeah, loved by liberals and hated by liberals at the same time, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, that 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 uh, condition of homelessness is very relatable mm -hmm. and it's very relatable in the way he writes too. Um, oh, I like Augustine so much as well. So this is. Yeah, absolutely. And something, yeah, he realized down the road is I have a lot in common with this guy. Number two for me is his use of scripture. Uh, this is one of the main things that initially attracted me to neo-orthodoxy in general. And I'm not categorizing Niebuhr necessarily as neo-orthodox, but that movement during World War II where people were trying to look at scripture in a different way other than just, you know, the inerrant word of God that's being propped up by the fundamentalists on the one hand and the, uh, you know, completely flat rendering offered by the liberals on the other that it's just a historical document of myths and, and that type of thing. But Niebuhr tries to chart that kind of middle road where this this is true like the, this scripture speaks truth not necessarily factual but it but it has kind of these lessons that um help us understand reality today and he has perfected something that uh, jeremy sabella um has brought up um he's perfected the sermonic essay the ability to read scripture with um with a lens uh for today with um, interpreting it so it's helpful for today. Um, and the proof's in the pudding. We're just going to have to get into one of those one of these times, but that, that's, one of my, that's one of my favorite. And along with that, um, it's been described as Niebuhr's kind of theology from below. So as opposed to Karl Barth, who is kind of like, this is a caricature, but Barth has this God that kind of speaks truths and dogmas to us to be realized in our own time. Uh, Niebuhr's more begins with you know, where we are. Um, and he looks at the authority of scripture as something that's correlative, not something that is um, chiseled to, into the side of a mountain, but something that is proven by our everyday experience, that Adam and Eve wasn't just some a historical event way back then. And it's not just a truth from way back then, but it's something we wake up and see it every day when we look in the mirror. We see the story of Adam and Eve unfold on the world stage. Um, these things are recurring. So that lens of understanding scripture was huge to me because I, I, I loved scripture. I knew it was meaningful, but um, Niebuhr helped me find a way to allow it to speak today. Mm. Number one, Zacchaeus. Yeah, number one. Um, 
uh, this is probably the most like striking thing that thing that really drew me to Niebuhr all of a sudden, you know, like, like really firmly drew me to him. Um, cause you know, I've already kind of mentioned that I really like the idea that he reminds people that sin isn't going away, but another part of his kind of working out of the doctrine of sin is its influence on like how you think about politics. Um, I kind of went to, I kind of was brought up in a, not, not in my home, but theologically brought up like through schooling in a more, I would say conservative setting. Um, you could just say generally that. And it was in a historical theology class at uh, Western seminary that I had to write a paper on a historical mentor and we got to read like 500 pages. You had to read 500 pages of this author. And so I thought, Oh, this is my chance to really dig into Niebuhr. You know, it's, I, I've been in school for the last seven years at this point. So I thought, finally, I have some time to read something that I want to read. Like, I mean, not that I hadn't read anything, you know, I definitely, some of the books I enjoyed along the way, but this is something I really wanted to read. And I had a lot of interest in reading. And so I, I finally had the time and, um, really good outlet for it. And so I had to read 500 pages and then write like a 10 page paper or something. And one of the, the main takeaways from this is that your, your faith has to impact your politics. Um, and I think this ties into our whole like issue of innocence that I just talked about a minute ago. Um, I actually wanted to read you guys this uh, review I did on Jeremy Sabella's book, uh, An American Conscience. It's a really read a short, short read, but it kind of sums up my views. It's actually something I posted on Amazon in review of the book just after I read it because it was such an impact on me. I said, as a pastor, I have long sought to avoid speaking on politics. I've simply avoided them and stuck to personal and family related issues of faith. Reading this book made me realize avoiding the topics of politics is an attempt to maintain my innocence by inaction and it stems from a bad theology. Sibella's account of Niebuhr's life helped me to recognize that anyone who claims faith in Christ by necessity must seek to remedy not only the effects of sin on a personal level, but must address it, its effects upon systems. In other words, one cannot claim to hate sin and also take a passive political stance towards systems which exploit and oppress. And I just felt like that was, you know, I've I, I read that because I feel like, man, that just really sums up like it was kind of an awakening for me. And, and honestly, this thing that I, I'm still having to kind of work out, like, how does that look? You know, how does that look? Because I was raised, theologically raised, you know, in ministry just to really focus on the personal issues, the piety, the, you know, make sure that your, your, your life is right. But it's like, man, Niebuhr really opened my eyes to the fact that, hey, like, if you believe, if you believe so firmly in depravity, then you better be pretty firmly believing that it impacts the systems which depraved people create. Yeah. Um, and so I've been wrestling with that for years now because I, it's, it's hard to unlearn that idea of just focusing on personal piety. But, you know, I'm kind of haunted by Niebuhr's words. He, he says, uh, he's speaking to ministers who do this where they, they just focus on personal piety and kind of like to say, oh, politics is not a big deal. He, he calls them, and it leads from the notebook of a tame cynic, he calls them the sorriest of preachers. <laughs> and I was like, man, that is, that is cutting, you know? Um, so yeah, and I, I haven't really worked out how to do that. I haven't really worked out to how to be involved in political issues as a pastor. Um, and it, it haunts me though. I, you know, ever since reading Niebuhr, I'm just like, man, I need to, even if I'm wrong, I need to be willing to have the courage to take stands on things that are wrong. And I think Niebuhr would admit that many times he was wrong, but maintaining your innocence by not saying anything is not any, you're not any less guilty. Yeah. Um, 
you're just guilty of doing nothing. So. Number one, Aaron. Hmm. Would be like for me, I guess the thing I've come across, especially during my time um, in the UK, especially like in Europe as as well, is just we've already kind of covered this topic a few times. It's just sort of estimations of how good we are as individuals and societies and where we're going and the one thing that's kind of always stuck out with me was I think this point that neighbor makes in human nature and the destiny of man where he says that we all have this idea that we're all generally really good people uh, but human history shows a lot of conflict and a lot of messiness a lot of violence and death and all of our political theories either start off with the presumption that we will become good, but they never really define where the bad stuff comes from or where it has. And I thought that was a beautiful way to portray his point on, you know, there's something in the human condition that brings out the ugly in all of us. And if we're just going to masquerade it with just how fluffy, you know, paintings of how good we are romantically or um you know th then uh, we're not going to get to the point or the solution to any problems so i i found that was probably the most illuminating point that helped me kind of understand his, his philosophy and my number one goes exactly with that and it's probably driven a lot from the nature and destiny of man which you referenced is that gosh modern the best that we've done um, can be characterized as romanticism, naturalism, rationalism, Marxism. and idealism. Like those are the best that we've come up with. And all of them have a certain source for evil that is externalized, that has nothing like, and it's, and it's conquerable. So we have kind of this easy conscience, you know, that all we need to do is educate ourselves. It's rationalism. All we need to do is return to nature to escape the evils of collective humanity or whatever. They all have these very simple formulaic answers to the way that we get rid of evil. But Niebuhr brings in an anthropology that is complex and dynamic and that is unified, but it is, we struggle with understanding it in its completeness. Um, at the center of our understanding of ourselves is where Niebuhr finds the problems that we don't know what to mm -hmm. do with ourselves. Uh, he begins Nature and Destiny of Man saying, we are our own most vexing problem. We can never quite solve ourselves. And then he kind of makes this turn to looking at how this construct of Imago Dei, of the image of God and how it relates to original sin is actually an extremely powerful way of understanding who we are and the way that we sin and the way that we bring evil into the world um, and how this plays into politics for Niebuhr. Um, and what he creates with this is kind of the closest I've ever come to somewhat of a fixed point that I can use to kind of analyze and understand the world. Um, you know, ever since Machiavelli, people have been trying to understand human nature as 
a, as kind of a fixed point of understanding the way our politics should be, but they've all been left wanting, you know, with, with these constructions. But this, he's got something going on with this uh, way that he understands the tension about human nature that is constantly finding itself in that same position as in the garden, in that same position as Cain, as that same position as, uh, as Babel. You know, we're constantly seeing these stories replay over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, and it actually is, can be helpful as a prophetic tool as well of understanding ourselves and, and our world. I think it's a really good point. It, for some reason, I just came to mind was um, Badu. And I remember reading a book on, a short little book on his recipes on love. And he lays out the problem, and to be quite frank, I, I, it's been some time since I've read it, but uh, it's not too long, maybe 50 or so pages. But it may, the main point is that we need to reinvent love because it's so deficient in our capitalist society. He's obviously coming it from a, a, a social critical school. Um, but I always find... Something? Sorry? Isn't he like Marxian Kantian? Like he's. Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think he's very enamored by Kant as well. Um, but I always find the language of reinventing, it, it seems to like suggest that there is a deficient, what well, it says suggests or implies deficiency in what's happening now. But there is this sort of like romantic element in that idea, like we can make something better out of what's now. In, in Neve, I think uh, Sabelle had a good point in the article we read that, you know, yeah, everything in, we have, you know, we shouldn't knock science or progress in our political lives or our, our social lives, but they're not the definite answer to everything. They can be, when those things fail, parts can be salvaged and reused for new things, right? But I see in Badu, like in his comments on reinventing love, this sort of optimism that we can change the way things are if we just change political economy. And it's almost like, well, maybe instead of going forward, we need to go backwards a bit and reassess like what's going on. Maybe that's the existential point that Niebuhr really brings out, right? And so I found that quite your point about it illuminating as well. That's a huge. That's a huge point to bring up about regarding Niebuhr is that he is an existentialist. Like he is talking about mm -hmm. things that are perennial issues. It's not just something in the past. It's not something correctable. It's and this goes also into the way that he clarifies reality. It's 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 about trying to clarify who we are and what the problem actually is deep down, you know. Uh, and and it's it's a problem that you know transcends time. It's existential, you know. That's a great point. I mean, these people talk about solutions to humankind and Niebuhr kind of shrugs, maybe laughs at that because it's uh, yeah. way too complicated. And that, that, yeah. And that point is really brought up in the Children of Light and Darkness where he says, I think in the end of chapter three, that democracy is um, approximate solutions to insoluble problems. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's trying to surround the problems and maybe try to uh, to guide them, but yeah. not to not to conquer them. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it goes along, I think this is also in Children of Light, Children of Darkness, where he says that the sad duty of politics, maybe this is irony in American history, sad duty of politics is to try to extract or to try to, to create justice in a sinful world. And he calls it a sad mm -hmm. duty because it's something that can never be fully achieved. You know, um, the sin is always corrupting and always finding new ways of manifesting new evils. Um, can, can I just interrupt and ask a question to you? Cliff? This is this is something that's always. I remember I was sitting in your um, office at CCU one day, and you asked me this question that always stuck with me. You said, "Can a nation be redeemed? Repent?" Yeah. I was like, "No, not at all." <laughs> and I've always thought about that ever since then. Like, the hell did he even mean by that? <laughs> I don't even know how you get there. But like, what would that look like? You know, and and I honestly, obviously with Niebuhr, I don't think that would be the case, right? We can't be fully redeemed as a collective, right? Right. It's um, there would have to be something coercive and not not genuine about it. That I asked. Yeah. I, I I remember why I asked this because my advisor. Uh, my PhD advisor was working on the question and she was mm. looking at, of course, Jonah, some stuff in the Bible, but also things like the, um, the truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa. Um, mm. And this question of can, yeah, can a nation repent? Um, and, yeah. uh, and Niebuhr would say there, there might be a mood at a time. There might be, you know, something that might look like a revival or, um, or something like this, or something like the Ukraine or World War II, or these types of things can create a kind of a fever or, or a new set of values that try to protect against those things that created those evils. Um, but it's difficult to call that repentance. It's, it seems yeah. more like a, a what, what do you call it? A, a zeitgeist, you know, a mood that kind of mm -hmm. overwhelms a society. Yeah, I don't know. So we've brought him up um, a few times just in a little bit, but I would like to say that if any of this sounds interesting to our audience um, and you don't know a lick about Niebuhr, first, I don't know why you're listening to this, but maybe you're just interested in theology and you, and you want to learn more about this fellow. Um, a, a great place to start is Jeremy Sabella's book, An American Conscience. Um, and it's actually a companion work to a documentary that's on PBS. Uh, of the same name, it's called American Conscience by, uh, it's about Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, it's a nice little primer on Niebuhr's thought and historical significance. And of course, Jeremy is a friend of the show. I think we can call him that. So you will hopefully be hearing more from him in the future here on the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast. But now let's turn to another question and we are pressed for time. So uh, we'll try to get through this as quickly as possible. And really it's two parts. Um, we had nothing planned for this, but I wanted us to speak openly for a moment about what it is that we want to accomplish with this podcast and why. So let's start with, uh, with Zach. What do you want to accomplish with this podcast? Um, I think uh, I just jump off of what Jeremy Sabella did with his book, but I why I think it's such a good book is that he took somebody that can be, uh, Niebuhr can be kind of hard to understand sometimes. I think maybe that's why he's been forgotten to history somewhat uh, in a lot of circles. And he took Niebuhr 
and he made him very he was able to contextualize him he was able to speak to like his writings and talk about their relevance with the context that the the historical context that was necessary and so part of my goal and i think all of our goals is to uh, get people engaged with Niebuhr and his works. Uh, I think all, for all these reasons we just brought up, uh, you know, he calls people to repentance. He leaves me, you know, when I'm reading, uh, he re leaves me kind of reassessing my life and reassessing my the theological convictions. Even though I, I probably disagree with Niebuhr on some fundamental theology issues, uh, man, I just can't stop reading him because it's just like, he really makes me think about how I'm behaving. You know what I mean? And, and, I also think, you know, just being very direct, I think that he is a great response to Christian nationalism. I think Christian nationalism is, yeah. you know, I'm, I preach at a little church in a small community in a very conservative place. And I think that uh, Niebuhr is able to use the Bible and biblical language and theology and the gospel, really, and use it to address the idolatry of Christian nationalism in a way that's very effective. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think when people are confronted by it, it's very hard to walk away. I, mean, I, I don't know how you could walk away from reading Niebuhr and be like, ah, oh, yes, I must continue on my way, you know, and maybe people can, but I, I think that, you know, his voice needs to be heard in that regard. Um, I think he has a lot to say and a lot that we could learn from. Yeah, good. Any, anything to add to that, Aaron? I think selfishly, I think I want to understand Niebuhr and where I stand with him. You know, I think in the spirit of Niebuhr would be to not fully accept Niebuhr, right? Like uh, to stand at odds with him and like just be a bit suspicious about what he has to say. But I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm quite interested in theology itself and my own personal growth in faith. Because on a person, I mean, I, I don't know where I stand in belief in God. Or I don't know where I see myself in the practice of faith and recently. Um, I, I like the idea of God and the church, but I haven't been to church in some time, though I do read quite regularly um, on theological works. Um, and my sort of like interest in radical orthodoxy, which I guess is quite part Protobartian, maybe, I don't know, um, you know, I'm trying to see where I stand in relation to these sort of concepts and movements and maybe I'll never find a place to stand on. Maybe that's the kind of condition I'm at, just wavering back and forth and maybe trying to articulate that in a better way uh, for myself. Um, on, on a less statistic, maybe, maybe less selfish note, um, I think what I would love to do with the podcast is make this intelligible. I mean, number one, there's a way of making Niebuhr intelligible to the political world make him relevant to our contemporary crisis. But that could have an effect of demystifying Niebuhr's religious sentiments, right? I guess you can have Niebuhr without the Jesus stuff, right? But like, it's an essential package. So like talking to my friends who aren't Christians or who are Christians, but don't understand Niebuhr's relationship to the Bible or to the God and how that actually culminates in an effective critique of contemporary society and what goes on, that is, needs to be outlined a bit better. You know, Niebuhr's did all he could to do it. And I think we're here to help other people kind of come to grips with that sort of bit. Excellent. Matter. And I, and I think, um, 
a couple points about that. One, that Niebuhr in his own time, there was a group called the Atheist for Niebuhr. So it's something, Niebuhr does something that is accessible for uh, all different yeah. kinds of people who are just interested in politics, or interested in human nature. There's even a movement right now that uh, kind of Tom Holland, the historian is kind of helping uh, push. And, and that is that it's a, it's a social type of Christianity. He's, he's kind of uncovered a lot of the ways, a lot of the good things about our society that are fundamentally Christian and kind of tapping into that well, how it can help us no matter where we are religiously um, can help us navigate uh, ethics and, and our, under, our own understanding. Um, coming up ahead on this podcast, we're going to be going into different articles about Niebuhr, uh, articles by Niebuhr. We're going to walk through uh, books uh, chapter by chapter um, with one another. And, uh, and we're going to, you know, get experts uh, to come in on here. I know that um, we've brought up Jeremy Sabella, um, teaches at Dartmouth, uh, and he's, a, he's a, a great guy, he brings a lot of clarity to Niebuhr. Um, and, uh, and we're also going to do some things like, uh, I, I brought up uh, recently, maybe a, a Niebuhr for noobs segment where we bring in somebody who's never been exposed to Niebuhr and uh, we read something with them and, uh, and see what their perspective is on, on Niebuhr. Uh, a lot of different things coming up. So um, yeah, but that's a, that might be a good place to stop, but please um, be sure to like, follow, or subscribe. Our Twitter account is simply at love thy neighbor on Twitter, at love thy neighbor. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, so long, everybody, and stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Please be sure to click like and subscribe, and please join our community by following us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor.